0: The United States and Saudi Arabia established full diplomatic relations in the mid-20th century, and from that point forward, ties have been tight, largely because of what each side gets from an interwoven economic, military, and diplomatic arrangement. The US, as the world's largest economy, wielding the world's largest military, needs a lot of oil, and the Saudis have just gobs of that. They are the second largest oil producer with the second largest oil reserves in the world, and they are the world's largest oil exporter. That export capacity, enabled in part by how cheap it is for them to produce and ship oil compared to other producers, which generally have more difficult to access oil deposits, which are thus more expensive to get to and pump, and which in some cases are only able to pump oil that requires a lot more costly processing to make it suitable for the global market. The Saudis, in contrast, have easy-to-get, easy-to-process and sell oil, but they're located in a highly unstable part of the world where there are generally several wars ongoing at any given moment, the consequence of invasions or turmoil caused by internal or external forces, and they deal with near-constant threats of regime change while also sharing a border with their ideological, governmental, and military arch-rival, Iran. The Saudi stockpiles of cheap and easy oil, then, makes them a target, and even with that resource wealth aside, they've got a lot of enemies close to home, many of whom would love to see them wiped out, even if they didn't have all those fossil fuels and all that money to steal. The dynamic here, then, is that the country with the world's largest military and massive energy resource needs provides military support, physical and threatened, and diplomatic backing, for one of the world's largest purveyors of said resources, which itself is located in a highly precarious and tumultuous region, and surrounded by sworn enemies and potential future sworn enemies. Both sides of this equation have traditionally gotten a lot from this relationship, evidenced by how much both sides lets the other get away with. The US largely looked the other way, for instance, when radicals from Saudi Arabia crashed planes full of civilians into the Twin Towers on September 11, 2001, when the Saudi government doubled down on the suppression of human rights within their borders and larger sphere of influence and when they murdered a U.S.-based journalist at their consulate building in Istanbul. While Saudi Arabia has overlooked the U.S.'s support of Israel, investment in U.S.-based shale oil infrastructure, which put the U.S. in direct competition with the Saudis on the global oil market, and the country's disagreements about how to approach Iran's nuclear weapons and or nuclear energy program, and how to deal with the ongoing Syrian civil war. Throughout it all, though, the US and Saudi Arabia have remained staunch supporters of each other's geopolitical goals and overall stability. There's evidence the Saudi government has preferred more conservative American politicians, and some American leaders have been more stern about Saudi human rights abuses than others. But even with those periodic blips on the news cycle radar, the overall relationship has remained sturdy, regardless of other, even significant, global or regional political variables. What I'd like to talk about today is a new rift in this relationship and what geopolitical pivots in both countries might mean for the future of Saudi Arabia. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the New York Times, and it's entitled, U.S. officials had a secret oil deal with the Saudis, or so they thought. The Saudi Arabian state oil company, Saudi Aramco, beat its last net income forecast with a 39% jump in the third quarter of 2022. It also beat estimates with its reported free cash flow numbers, suggesting it has a lot more resources than expected to use for paying down debt, making investments, and paying out dividends to shareholders. That 39% jump brings its income up to $42.4 billion for the three months leading up to the last day of September. And to better establish context for that number, that's $42.4 billion compared to the previous year's third quarter income of $30.4 billion. So that's a pretty wild leap and even higher than the $41.7 billion estimate most analysts had optimistically presented leading up to this quarter's financial divulgences. This increase is of a kind, with financial boosts reported by other globally operating oil producers and the fossil fuel-based energy companies in general throughout 2022. But in the latter part of that year in particular, ExxonMobil, for instance, brought in third-quarter profits of $19.66 billion, which is within spitting distance of most valuable company in the world, tech company Apple's $20.7 billion profits for the same period, and other oil and gas entities have seen similarly extravagant, expectations-defying monetary booms of late. Despite my best efforts to at some point produce an episode of this show where I don't mention China or COVID-19 or Russia's invasion of Ukraine, three metatopics that seem to be influencing just about everything these days, alongside even more meta-metatopics like climate change and the grand realignment of the 20th century-born international order. Despite that, this is where I have to mention that the majority of these profit boosts are being attributed to the triple whammy of Russia's invasion, which has fundamentally recalibrated global supply chains for raw goods, especially energy commodities like oil and gas, the countless and weird impacts of having a multiple year-long global pandemic, and the other slower but rapidly speeding up realignment being forced on essentially every government simultaneously triggered by global climate change which is partially the consequence of on-the-ground realities and partially the consequence of commitments made by those governments. So there are both tangible and political forces at play here, and both of those variable categories are forcing a lot of hands, even those that wouldn't typically be interested in shifting to solar and wind and nuclear and other sorts of clean and just cleaner power source types. There's a dearth, of oil where oil is needed then because of those variable recalibrations, and oil companies are producing on average less oil than usual because of the upsets caused by COVID, which significantly slowed manufacturing and overall consumption of energy using goods and services like travel for more than a year, and though some of those demand issues are resetting back to approximately where they were in late 2019, before everything went down, The supply side hasn't caught back up yet, so there's less supply for more demand, and consequently, the price of oil is up essentially everywhere, and the companies bringing that oil to market are profiting massively, because that's how capitalism works. There are a lot of sub-stories to that main energy market narrative, but the one that's important to understand for the purposes of this episode is that the Saudis make the vast majority of their country's income from oil and related products. Something like 80% of their export revenue and around 40% of their total GDP is directly attributable to that industry. And that sector is looking really good for oil producers right now. So they're even more flush than usual with wealth. That means they've got more raw resources to throw around, but also that they're an even more vital geopolitical entity than they have been in recent decades. And they've already been important enough that the world's biggest economy, most powerful military, and most potent diplomatic force, the US government, has repeatedly overlooked the Saudi's human rights records, handed them billions of dollars in financial and military aid, and essentially kowtowed to their leaders, all in an effort to keep that ongoing mutually beneficial relationship, sturdy and predictable. In mid-2017, a Saudi prince named Mohammed bin Salman, often referred to as MBS, became the official crown prince of Saudi Arabia, meaning the designated successor of the country's king and thus officially the second most important person in the country, though in many ways the most important, because at this moment, the king is not as engaged with the world as the prince is. So the prince is the person doing most of the diplomatic work and negotiation and future planning for the country. MBS has been celebrated at times, as he seems to have some big ideas, some big ambitions and even at times to have been open to liberalizing the country in the sense of improving the nation's human rights-related laws, especially as they relate to women, becoming more progressive in terms of democracy and related values, and essentially pivoting this part of the Middle East a little bit more toward dominant Western values, something the U.S. and Europe and other such entities were excited to see. Eventually, though, most of that veneer of progressivism and liberalization began to fade, and though MBS maintains a reformist brand in some circles related to some issues, There have been gestures toward an increase in women's rights, for instance. He's also been at the center of numerous, at times fairly horrific, scandals, including reportedly ordering the aforementioned assassination of a U.S.-based Saudi journalist who was then dismembered with hacksaws at an official government building in Turkey to remove his body after he was tortured and murdered. These issues have resulted in many, let's say, quibbles and qualms in the Western world when dealing with the Saudis, since MBS is the one running things these days, but there's still some optimism surrounding his plans many of which are lumped together under what's been designated Saudi Vision 2030, and which are projects and plans focused on diversifying the country away from oil and a grand reinvestment of its spectacular wealth in various health, education, tourism, and eco-friendly undertakings there have been previews of this vision's components in recent years as the country via the prince invested in highly leveraged fast-growing u.s-based tech companies like uber at times through large investment funds like the previously well-regarded but currently not so much softbank vision fund but from 2016 onward, it's been a more self-contained portfolio of ventures mostly, including some MBS pet projects like the much-vaunted, currently-under-construction smart city, The Line, which is meant to eventually be a 110-mile-long, which is about 170 kilometers long, single-building city that will look sci-fi futuristic, will be essentially a single line of building, completely carbon neutral, sustained entirely by green energy, and which will be a fundamental component of a larger ambition called NEOM, which is a region meant to encompass 10,200 square miles, which is about 26,500 square kilometers, which will be based along the Red Sea and optimally become a vital economic zone for the country all of which sounds interesting and could be good for the country's economy and development if it's ever finished, but initial components of NEOM were meant to be finished up in 2020, and that didn't happen, which means the second round of efforts, originally scheduled to be completed in 2025, also will not be completed on time. This project is expected to cost around $500 billion, so half a trillion dollars, but because of the extension in building time and because of how even a single building, much less a building pitched as a smart city, using all advanced tech in what's basically a coastal desert, even a single building goes over the estimated costs, so this could end up being a hugely expensive novelty that never gets finished or catches on. That's the worry amongst some potential investors and folks with a stake in it anyway. What Neom and the line within Neom represent, though, whether or not they're ever finished, is an ambition to move away from the current Saudi reliance on oil, which is arguably a prudent concern as the global economy is making this same shift. Which means at some point, the Saudis will be flush with a raw material that's no longer in demand, or at the very least, at nowhere near the current demand and price level. In the meantime, though, the country is still almost entirely reliant on oil for its wealth and well-being, which means any changes have to be careful changes, lest they accidentally impoverish the country by celebrating the shift away from oil before their accounting ledgers have fully or mostly made that transition which is a difficult balance to strike, similar to what we're seeing with the clean investment wings of non-country international oil producing corporations like BP and Exxon and Chevron. So that context established, flipping back around to that Times piece, U.S. President Biden took a trip to Saudi Arabia over the summer, fist-bumping the crown prince in the midst of a scandal related to those aforementioned issues that the U.S. public has with the Saudis in general, and MBS in particular, right now. He made this concession, this minor kowtow, because of those aforementioned oil and broader energy industry supply-related issues, which had been causing petroleum prices in the U.S. to skyrocket, Around the world, too, but Biden was presumably most focused on U.S. prices at the moment. High energy prices are not good for anyone, except maybe oil producers, generally, because rising energy prices of any kind contribute to inflation, which is also an ongoing issue around the world, including the U.S., But it's also not good for Biden personally, because high oil prices are a hot-button issue for Americans, and whomever is in office when those prices go up tend to take the blame, even when they are arguably or obviously not responsible for those price increases in any way. Thus, Biden wanted to plant a seed that would hopefully help reduce inflation across the country by ensuring the Saudis pumped more oil, increasing the amount of global supply to ease the impacts of increasing global demand, while also, almost certainly at least a little, keeping his eye on the U.S. midterm elections, during which Democrats would stand a better chance in tight races if oil prices were lower rather than higher. Early in October of 2022, though, OPEC+, plus, which is the cartel of mostly Middle Eastern and African oil-producing nations, plus Russia, met up to figure out how they would set oil production levels in order to best control global oil prices. And the U.S. government, because of that earlier light kowtowing, felt like they had things on lock, that the Saudis would support efforts to increase production and consequently would lower prices at a vital political and economic moment. That is not what happened. Instead, the Saudis, seemingly in tandem with Russia, voted and presumably swayed their allies to vote to reduce oil production by 2 million barrels a day. And the practical impact of that vote would be less than that, as many of these nations were already operating at below their maximum possible capacity, according to their OPEC commitments. But symbolically, This was a major deal, as it meant that visit by Biden didn't accomplish anything. And it looked like Saudi Arabia was actually acting in support of Russia and against America's interests, because the net impact of this decision would be to increase profits for major OPEC-aligned oil exporters like Russia, while increasing oil prices for importers like the US, kicking up prices at the pump and maybe even keeping inflation moving upward as well. The U.S. and the Biden administration in particular, which in their mind had lowered themselves to fist bump this journalist-assassinating, woman-hating prince, was pissed. The Saudis were cast as being disloyal to a country that has kept them safe, with American-made advanced weaponry and billions of dollars in free money, not to mention the ever-present umbrella of American military support if anyone ever messes with the Saudis. And that was not okay with the U.S. government. Biden immediately started hard talking about the U.S.-Saudi relationship, and other people throughout the government, including folks on the other side of the aisle, began to speculate about why the U.S. even needed Saudi Arabia anymore, especially if they weren't going to be reliable partners at vital moments like this one. In the weeks since, the Saudi energy ministry has said that this wasn't a diplomatic issue. It was the Saudi government acting in the best interest of the Saudi people. It's just business, basically. And we don't know why the U.S. government is making such a fuss about an agreement that we never saw as an agreement in the first place. They've also said that they don't control OPEC+, Plus. it's a consensus-based organization. So the idea that the Saudis did this, rather than it being a democratic decision between nations, is nonsense. That latter point... a bit controversial, as although OPEC plus is indeed a vote-based group, the Saudis are the big dog of the group, and they reportedly have massive sway over everyone else. So although Russia is less influenced by their maneuverings, pretty much everyone else toes the line drawn by the Saudis in these sorts of decisions. That former point has a bit more meat to it though, as it's possible that the Saudis legitimately did not see what they were doing in this instance, as the diplomatic slap to the face that the U.S. government perceived it to be. From their perspective, they were doing what would earn them the most money, which makes sense if you're a government of any kind, but especially a government trying to make such a hard pivot away from oil. If you're in charge of such a government, it makes rational sense, according to the laws of the market, to try to wring as much money from every barrel of oil possible so that you can make enough overall money from those resources to transition over to whatever comes next before that well metaphorically dries up because of that larger climate and clean energy-related pivot in the relatively near future. Things have calmed down a little in the weeks since this diplomatic upset, as although the Saudis have suggested they might build closer ties with China, they've also made clear that they're still committed to their relationship with the U.S. The U.S. similarly has gestured at being a bit less pissed off, Biden's energy envoy recently said, for instance, quote, While we clearly disagreed with the OPEC Plus decision in early October, we recognized the importance of continuing to work and communicate with Saudi Arabia and other producers to ensure a stable and fair global energy market, end quote. That said, there are ongoing efforts, even within Biden's close-knit cluster of advisors and supporters, to truncate military and financial support to Saudi Arabia, To reassess the nature and scale of the alliance, and to either push back hard on the kingdom to punish them and force them to realign their interests so they're a better fit for the US's, or to reconsider that relationship more fundamentally. Reinvesting that support in other countries, other approaches to achieving the same thing, or in something else altogether. Acknowledging that the world has changed, and thus, so has the US's priorities and needs in the Middle East. The world is moving away from oil, after all, so why continue to invest in a country whose only value to the states, in the mind of some analysts and politicians at least, is their steady stream of oil resources that then in turn support U.S. interests? It's likely In the wake of both the practical impacts and political repercussions stateside of that OPEC plus vote, that the U.S. government will be a bit chillier toward the Saudis in the coming months, and may even make some gestures at other entities in the regions, throwing more support behind Israel, or even smaller oil entities like the UAE or Qatar, in order to make a point to the Saudis that they can be replaced. Similarly, the Saudis may well be thinking that their US-shaped golden goose is looking a little long in the tooth, and it may be prudent to diversify their relationships more thoroughly to account for the splintering of the international system that we're going through right now. Rather than putting all their eggs in the US alliance basket, in other words, they might act in ways that will force the US, China, and to a lesser degree, Russia, to compete for their resources and support in the region. A move that could further improve their fortunes, but could also put them at greater risk of facing regional struggles and even proxy conflicts instigated by the outside forces they've scorned. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Been There, Done That, A Rousing History of Sex by Rachel Feltman. This book is exactly what it sounds like. It's a walk through the history of some of what we know and think we know about sex, about the way different cultures historically have looked at it, their different proclivities, the history of some of our modern proclivities, an exploration of a lot of misinformation and why we have so much misinformation related to this topic in particular. And it's all related in a very funny but still quite informative style, something that this author is particularly good at in all of her writing. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Been There Done That by Rachel Feltman. You can find out more about me and my work at Colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a collection of my other projects at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube, and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and a whole lot of other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.